hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Like many of you, I had that one professor in college who completely changed my life. His name was Professor Jens T. Volesen, and he taught Art History 101 at the University of Toronto. And full disclosure, I really only took that course for a gen ed credit. And yada, 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 here we are. The Great Courses Plus is like having all the Professor Jens T. Volesens in one place. Get unlimited access to thousands of lectures from everything to art, to history, to science, even learn how to draw, presented by engaging, award-winning experts. And The Great Courses Plus makes it easy to enjoy these lectures whenever you want, which you can watch from your TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone, and you can stream the audio, podcast style, with The Great Courses Plus app. They have a wonderful course that I particularly recommend, Dutch Masters, The Age of Rembrandt, which explores the old masters not only by how they shaped their history, but how they shaped one another, which is my favorite way to study art history. And for listeners of The Lonely Palette, there's a special limited-time offer. Get a full month of free, unlimited access if you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lonely. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lonely for all the knowledge in the world. And by The Conversation, the newest art podcast in my queue, hosted by Los Angeles-based artist Michael Shaw. Each bi-weekly episode is a behind-the-scenes look at the contemporary art worlds. Worlds, that's plural. Because as it turns out, there's more than just one contemporary art world. And if you're curious about all of them, then The Conversation is the show for you. Michael has free-flowing conversations with artists, writers, gallerists, curators, and collectors, all about their unique relationships with contemporary art. The most recent episode actually features freshly minted hub and spoker Lucas Spivey of Culture Hustlers and his Shasta camper turned mobile incubator of creativity. And you're definitely going to want to listen to his story. So check it out and every other episode of The Conversation at theconversationpod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. First off, it's obviously, these are images, black and white images, like an old theater. Most of them look old, yeah. Kind of Baroque looking, but it's almost kind of creepy because of the white glow from the center of the stage. And there's no one sitting in the theater. So it's almost kind of giving me like a horror movie (laughs) feeling. But at the same time, depending on how you look at it, it can be calm because it just looks very quiet and peaceful. Kind of like anticipation to me, you know, like that feeling of like waiting for something to start. That's what I get. Excitement, because it's like the theater is about to begin. You're about to see exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, you can, you can see the architecture around the stage, the different uh, carvings and, and textures, and you can see a little bit of the seats too in the front row, and they're lit up in the light, and it's all coming from the front stage, and it creates a very moody feeling in the picture. Uh, you know, black and white photography, lots of, lots of darks, but the contrast right around the stage is it's bright white, and then right next to it is, is the deep blacks, and that just creates an interesting visual. It draws your eyes right into the center of the photo. 
To me, it feels kind of lonely. It's like a lonely, empty theater, too, you know? Still and strange, and it's almost like sad. These are, you know, they're very elaborate, you know, kind of beautiful old theaters, and they're empty and dark, and there's nothing on the screen because if you're describing a cinema or a movie theater, you have a motion picture, you have a play, you have people acting, you have people moving. This is a blank screen, there's no one in the theater, nothing is moving. It's just almost like dead, except for this white screen that's showing absolutely nothing. It was almost like a, maybe like a nostalgic feeling. It was important, but now it could be obsolete. But I feel like it has like some kind of importance to someone. When I first saw these, I thought that they might be windows onto God, just because it's blank, it's white, it's all kinds of light all mixed together. Um, but the longer I looked at them, I thought, well, <laughs> maybe it's what I'll see at the end of my life when I'm flashing back and looking at the movie of my life, because I'll be the only one in the theater, and I'll have the best seat in the house, and I'll get to see it all. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one painting at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 31, Hiroshi Sugimoto's Bird Theater, Richmond, 1993, from 1993. I was on a bus one time just looking around, minding my own business, when I saw an ad for a local church. The ad was just this one big quote. It was attributed to C.S. Lewis, the well-known big-time Christian. And it read, quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else, end quote. And I gotta say, I just fell in love with this quote. I'm not a Christian. I'm not even a terribly observant Jew. But I worship at the altar of the written word. And man, is that a good line. It's just such a perfect, beautiful metaphor for understanding innately something large and abstract through what it brings into focus. You don't need to understand the thing itself Maybe it's not even understandable, but you do understand what it lets you empirically experience by what it brings into your life. I don't understand the nature of love, but by it, I see the pink at the tips of my husband's ears and my heart grows three sizes. And this image, Hiroshi Sugimoto's Bird Theater in Richmond, makes me think of this quote. Because to dive into the photographs of this 71-year-old Japanese photographer and architect is to take on this big abstract thing through what it illuminates. For him, it's not love or God, but time. His work, over and over through many different series of photographs, all take on the nature of time. They all, in his words, quote, expose time. And it's interesting to parse out the different kinds of time Sugimoto is talking about. 
It can be the infinite ripples of water in a quiet seascape, or the sharp focus of fur on a prehistoric diorama. In other words, it can be time ongoing, or a moment in time that has passed. For both, Sugimoto writes, quote, photographs function as a fossilization of time, end quote. A photograph is a moment of stasis, of stillness. It's capturing something so fleeting you can't actually capture it. Because the moment photographed will always be snatched, removed from its context, like grabbing a part off an assembly line. Even if you catch it, it won't really be it anymore. It immediately becomes outdated and functionally useless. It becomes a fossil. And yet, as we all know from our field trips to natural history museums, fossils are totally invaluable. They're relics of a time that has since passed, and that's really important. They're like the pillars of ancient Greek temples, or the sumptuous movie theaters from the golden age of Hollywood. And if you couldn't already tell, Sugimoto adores these theaters. As a little boy in Tokyo in the 1950s, he fell in love with them, with seeing movies with his mother, with the emotions evoked both from the films themselves and from the magnificent little details of the architecture. Sugimoto's most famous photo series is of these theaters, which this image is a part of. Since the 1970s, he's captured more than 100 movie houses and drive-ins, all in this same format. A glowing white square in the center, like looking into a camera's viewfinder, which provides the light to the razor-sharp detail of the theater that surrounds it. These photos are striking on their own, but they're especially powerful grouped together. When you can see the different kinds of architectural details from theater to theater, and how the quality of the glowing light changes from theater to theater. The MFA hangs four of these small, intimate photographs close enough together so that none seem too isolated or too small against the large white walls. They're hung in the first gallery of the exhibition Seeking Stillness, which is on view until September. But even if you can't make it to the exhibition itself, which I assume is the case for most of you, the name really says it all. The exhibition was created in anticipation of a motherlode loan of Mark Rothko's from the National Gallery in DC, all of which comprise the final gallery of the show and which we've already discussed in episode 24. The MFA called its permanent collection to find the objects that best prepared a visitor to walk into a room of Rothko's, the objects that create a sense of, well, stillness. The artwork throughout the show is gently monochromatic, with no jarring textures or even colors, until you arrive at the Rothkos. They're hung on creamy white walls with ample room to breathe, as breezy as wearing linen on a hot summer day. And all of them evoke a meditative sense of stasis and reflection. And yet, as Rothko has taught us, the act of reflection isn't necessarily relaxing. Rather, it's the first part of a two-step process, 
the one where we seek an environment of stillness to better listen to our own internal noise so that we can then take the next steps of processing that noise and arriving at a kind of internal stillness. Really, that's what meditation is all about. And what makes this exhibition so powerful is that it is simply full of images of emptiness that we, in turn, fill up. Everywhere we look, from Agnes Martin to Edward Weston to Sugimoto to Rothko, there's a representation of essentially nothing. And it turns out that we humans are really bad when it comes to nothing. We need a something. We create narratives. It's what we do. We might be pretty good at step one, at surrounding ourselves with stillness, but not quite as good at step two, at quieting ourselves. And it therefore takes an enormous amount of restraint of quieting our own interiors to approach this photograph and to simply allow our eyes to stare straight into a seemingly blank screen like an abstract white painting and simply let the calm glow warm up a very specific interior of an old-timey movie theater. But it's worth the effort because this is how to best prepare ourselves to approach any of Sugimoto's photographs and to truly experience this fundamental tension that he creates between the abstract and the specific. And from there, to truly appreciate how he captures time. But we'll get there. In the meantime, this tension between the abstract and the specific should be a familiar one by now. We've seen this in 20th century art a lot, from Edward Hopper's quiet narratives that are at once generalized and precise, to Roy Lichtenstein's comic frames that are isolated from their stories. There's no better way to describe something that is universally conceptual than through these little details. And here, we're looking at a photograph of a theater interior, and it's incredibly, almost piercingly sharp. Sugimoto famously uses an 8 by 10 inch large format camera, all bellows and screens like an accordion atop a tripod, and known for its exceptional precision. And by it, we see every detail. The fringe of the curtain, the arms of the chairs, the pudgy little columns of the balustrade, the illuminated exit signs. And this sharply focused scene surrounds a glowing, ostensibly blank screen. So much detail goes into surrounding so much nothing. But again, it's the luminescent, empty screen that provides the light to see all of this exceptional detail, which then in turn frames the emptiness of that luminescent screen. It's both an exquisite, highly technical photograph of an interior, and a deeply eerie portrait of a void, like looking into the white of an eye with no eyeball. But the twist here is that it's really not a blank screen at all. He opens up his camera shutter at the beginning of the movie and exposes the entirety of the film. In other words, this empty screen is actually the whole movie. 
The light that we're seeing coming from the screen and lighting up the interior is actually a long time lapse of all 172,800 quote-unquote after images, as Sugimoto calls them, or really just the light from the film condensed into one frame. And he learned to play with this light to anticipate how it would affect the interiors. Different movie narratives, he discovered, give off different brightnesses. Quote, if it's an optimistic story, he says, I usually wind up with a bright screen. If it's a sad story, it's a dark screen. The brightest movies are spaghetti westerns because they're all shot outside. But an occult movie, very dark, end quote. And this photograph, showing us the entire movie in one frame, is representative of the kind of unique artist that Sugimoto really is. He's an artistic oxymoron. He embodies both abstraction and specificity himself, delighting in giving blur as much sharpness as possible. As an architect, of course, he needs to be specific and precise. After all, no matter how beautiful a building is, its walls still need to be load-bearing. It still needs to be at least somewhat functional. But Sugimoto also revels in the intangible world of ideas. He cites Picasso and Marcel Duchamp as his primary influences. Of course, architecture and Dada exist across a pretty broad artistic spectrum. I mean, no one would ever feel safe in a building designed by Marcel Duchamp. Yet Sugimoto seems to be able to bridge the two, all the while creating something in these photographs that is wholly his own. I mean, look at what he's accomplishing here. He has created an ingenious light source to illuminate a darkened theater. The theater itself is a fossil, chock full of architectural details from another era, and magnificently captured because this light source is actually a condensed piece of time itself. Time, the most fleeting and invisible and powerful force that human beings can experience, is captured, even for just a moment, as a glowing, pulsing square that illuminates the relics of the past. And these theaters, these artifacts of Hollywood's golden age are the most straightforward way that Sugimoto evokes time. Because it's a kind of time that we can wrap our minds around. It's a question of history and nostalgia for a world that no longer exists. In a time of watching Netflix on our phones in bed, it's easy to overlook what an event it must have been to see these oversized movie stars on the oversized silver screens. And by presenting these theaters in such sharp detail, it's like he's asking us to time travel with him, to place ourselves in the moment by placing ourselves in those plush velvet seats, which haven't yet been blurred by a fading memory. Quote, Look at Greece and the beautiful Parthenon, Sugimoto wrote. It was once glorious, and now it's in terrible condition. History is passing and we will not be forever. I can look out my window and watch New York City being built now. But maybe 500 years later, a thousand years later, this might be in ruins too." End quote. 
And Sugimoto addresses this idea in his photos as well, this idea of ruin. He's recently embarked on a new photo series, one that documents the decay of these grand movie palaces, many of which now sit abandoned and derelict. He shows the films himself, bringing these theaters temporarily back to life with a white sheet for a screen hung in front of a dilapidated background, like a bizarro version of the original photo series of these pristine theaters, once monuments to the glory of the past and now victims of the very time that he is attempting to capture. It's also worth mentioning, of course, that we're talking about photography. And there's an added layer that we haven't talked about yet, which is the fact that there's this accepted sense of artificiality that comes part and parcel with Hollywood, but which we very rarely consider to be part of photography. Of course, it's nuts that we do this, that we harbor this delusion that photographs must be telling the truth, that they capture the world as it is, in contrast, of course, with a painter, who we see capturing the world through his or her hand, but really his or her imagination. But photographs are just as easily manipulated, just as calculated, just as filtered through the eye of the photographer. We talked about this in depth when we looked at Henrik Ross's Lodge Ghetto photographs in episode 20. This false idea that documentary is objective and storytelling is subjective when really, they're two sides of the same coin. Sugimoto loved playing with the idea that photographs can lie, and produced a series of photographs of dioramas from natural history museums, seemingly authentic polar bears on ice floes that are really as fake as a movie set. And when it comes to the theater series, he's actually pretty vocal about how superimposing this whole movie at once is a creative act of the artist, not in any way purporting to be telling the story of the film. The film is just a tool, same as the paper that he prints the photo onto. Quote, usually a photographer hangs around and captures the moment, he said. But I created my own illusion that doesn't exist in reality. It's just my own imagination. But I get to make my imagination visible, end quote. Of course, he's not the first artist who has tried to make time visible. Looking at Sugimoto's artistic influences, we're reminded of how many 19th and 20th century artists we've explored who have tried to capture time on a canvas. And interestingly, it's almost always by rendering movement. After all, capturing movement is capturing time because you're articulating both the space and the trajectory between two moments. And also interestingly, we see the role that technology plays. The artists most fascinated with rendering time tended to be the ones most affected by how technology was changing both their day-to-day -day world and their art. They became obsessed with the idea of pinning down technology's speed with, of course, technology's help. Consider the invention of the camera, 
and its role in allowing artists to capture their moments in real time. It's an interesting trajectory to follow. Take, for example, the English photographer Edward Muybridge, who, in the later 1870s, experiments with multiple cameras that capture a horse galloping, like the individual pages of a flipbook. In the short run, he proves, unimpeachably, that there is a moment in a horse's gait when all four legs are off the ground, and this made him famous. But in the long run, thanks to his quick shutter speeds, his sequence of shots set the stage for moving pictures. Then Picasso comes along in the early 1910s with a painting like Portrait of a Woman, which we looked at in episode six, and he riffs on these multiple images by turning them into cubes, piling them atop each other, and experimenting with a highly intellectual exercise of capturing multiple perspectives at once, like taking that flipbook and layering all of those images on top of each other. This is, of course, cubism, which operates on the assumption that if we're going to capture all of these individual perspectives of, for example, a single woman, we're capturing their shift across space and time because we don't just stand still. Our perceptions move right along with us. And then along comes Duchamp, who takes these overlapping cubes and repurposes them by giving them a direction to go in. In his new descending a staircase from 1912, each cube now represents a different facet of her musculature as she goes from the top of the stairs down to the bottom, leaving trails of her imprint on the air. And then, of course, our good friends, the futurists, borrow this idea and further infuse this dynamism with speed and power, showing every movement at once as their figures stride across canvases. And then we come to the present, Fast forward 80, 90, 100 years and look at this movie theater. After all, what is Sugimoto doing with these screens if not showing us every movement at once? And this is how he exposes time. Time. This slippery little minx. Why? Why time? Why is time such an irresistible subject matter for artists? What is the allure? I guess you could consider it a form of chasing the dragon. Think about Monet trying to follow the light across the sky in a potentially unending series of haystacks. There's just something seductive about impossible pursuits. But I think we're hung up on a few too many verbs. Too much activity, all of this chasing and following and pursuing. We're never going to grasp it. Playing with time is like playing with a Chinese finger trap. It's futile to try to force it. And remember, these Sugimoto photographs are about seeking stillness. And to that end, I think there's something he really values about sitting in the moment about feeling it as it flows through him like water, and then bearing witness to that experience. After all, when he isn't photographing movie theaters and dioramas, he's capturing seascapes, 
calm, meditative divisions of monochromatic blocks, dividing the canvas in two, the water and the horizon. The ripples in sharp focus in the midst of the most gentle, endless blur. I've had one of these photos as my desktop background all week, and honestly, I can't recommend it highly enough. When you relax your eyes, the ripples of water give the sensation of moving, like you're caught in an eternal moment of ripples, a placid boomerang of time passing. But they freeze up again if you stare directly at them. And after a little while of quieting your eyes, you notice that there's a light in the middle of the water, like a lantern just below the surface, spreading its warmth from below. It's actually the water reflecting the sun. But it doesn't just sit glittering on the surface. Instead, it mutes its own presence, giving shadow to those infinite ripples and gently illuminating everything else. Special thanks to Nelson DeWitt, Rachel Levine, and the intrepid museum goers at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. For more information, past episodes, and all of the images, go to thelonelypalette.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, at Lonely Palette, or on Instagram, where I regularly post bonus images from each episode, at The Lonely Palette, or you can like us on Facebook. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell the world by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And I've got some exciting news. The Lonely Palette is now officially a quote-unquote award-winning podcast. Specifically, the 2018 Best Podcast of Boston, according to the Improper Bostonian magazine. This is super exciting and humbling and validating and weird. And I'm so grateful to all of you for listening and putting this show on the map. And if you're looking for ways to celebrate, supporting the show on Patreon certainly never goes amiss. Check it out at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a new collective of idea-driven podcasts. And I'm thrilled to announce that Hub & Spoke is rapidly expanding. We've welcomed in two new shows that I'm really excited about. The first is Culture Hustlers, where host Lucas Spivey interviews folks at the intersection of art and business with the mission of keeping artists from starving. The second is Iconography, where host Charles Gustine tackles the icons, both real and imagined, that are defined by specific places. Read all about them, find their websites, and dive back into all of the current Hub & Spokers at hubspokeaudio.org. 
sous la pluie, à midi ou à minuit, il y a tout ce que vous voulez aux Champs-Élysées.